welcome to the Weekly Skeptic episode 19. I'm Nick Dixon and I'm joined by Alistair Campbell's favourite commentator, Mr. Toby Young. This week, the regime attempts to re-educate Jordan Peterson. Prince Harry has some trouble with his todger and Nick makes it into Private Eye magazine. Plus our top stories of the week with Will and a bumper edition of Peak Woke. But first, Toby, I'm thinking about starting with a new section called Haters Gonna Hate because we get so much hate now just for being ourselves and telling the truth. It's very, very sad. But Private Eye, once a satirical magazine led by the genius of Peter Cook, has now become a sort of establishment shill fest, and they've taken to attacking people, even the humble NJD. Can you believe it? They've had a pop at Nick Dixon. I mean, why are they bothering with someone like me? They started off by having a pop at Mark Stein, and he said something about Aryans or something that they didn't like. I don't know what he said. I mean, Stein says some bonkers stuff. Presumably he was joking or making some wry point. I didn't bother checking. It was on his podcast. I'd have to listen to the whole thing. And this is the only podcast I listened to. But they then went on to say that I had some wacky COVID opinions. And then I talked about pure bloods on Twitter. And they referred to it. It was a tweet. It was just one tweet I did that said pure bloods forever with the strong arm emoji. To me, if you stick, if you stick in a, an emoji like that, you're obviously joking. But they took it very seriously as part of my sort of Aryan eugenics plan. And I've even written an article for the Daily Skeptic about it called Private Eye Called Me a Nazi, which they kind of did because they went from Stein's Aryan thing to my pure blood. That was a strong implication, wasn't it? Yeah, but your pure blood thing, just to make it clear, and I don't think Private Eye made it clear, was a reference to the unvaccinated, right? So it was a mm. kind of joke about how if you hadn't been vaccinated, your blood was purer than the vaccinated. It's not something you actually believe. And you made it clear you don't actually believe that by accompanying it with a a strong arm emoji. Well, yeah, they, they did say he praises people for not getting the vaccine and calls them purebloods. But the thing is, they call purebloods. It's a meme. It's like a funny meme. You know, they get called purebloods. I mean, it's, it's quite funny, isn't it? It's not that serious. But Private Eye used to recognise humour. But now they're just take, doing these pearl-clutching hit pieces. Private Eye has become um, a mouthpiece of the establishment. It is extraordinary. Um, but it's, it's true also of many... Um, things that were once upon a time thorns in the establishment side, like comedians, you know, um, uh, uh, universities, um, you know, there's a vast panoply of things which, you know, uh, used to be rebellious, dangerous, iconoclastic, irreverent, which have now become mouthpieces of the establishment as those people have been incorporated into the establishment. I mean, some like Ian Hislop, the editor-in-chief of Private Eye, I mean, he couldn't be more of a pillar of the kind of liberal, metropolitan, urban establishment. Um, and that's echoed in Private Eye, but I think it's it's sort of amplified by the fact that they employ 20-something recent university graduates and they're all very, very woke. Um, so it's become a kind of enforcer of progressive orthodoxy. Uh, and that is now the ruling class's ideology. Um, so it's become you know, um, an, establish an establishment organ, which is a shame. Um, you know, the Daily Skeptic is kind of, you know, has much more in common with the old private eye than private eye now does. Yes, a good point. And that's it. And, and people like you, Toby, have shifted to always remain the counterculture. You used to be a punk. Now you're doing what you do now. And it, but it's always counterculture. And I'm kind of the same, whereas, like you say, these lot have just become the establishment. Their side's won. And they've gone, OK, now we love the establishment because we are the establishment. And you mentioned that comedians are another thing. Then the other person in hate is going to hate is Daniel Sloss, the Scottish comedian known as a bit of a, of a mummy's boy who had an e easy break early on. He, he got a writing job on Mock the Week, age 16. And I wouldn't say these things, of course, but he's had a go at us first. I say us because he attacked all the comedians on GB News and said there are no real comedians on GB News. 
They may have comedian under their name, but they're not comedians who have done the hard work on the circuit or are respected by their peers. Now, never mind me. I always think of this scene in Barton Fink where he goes, ne- never mind how long I've been in pictures. Never mind me. Mr. Lipnick practically invented them. So never mind me. But what about Simon Evans, the most respected comedian, one of the most respected comedians in the country by any metric, represented by the top comedy agent who literally on their bio say he's one of the most established and well-respected comedians. He's done Live at the Apollo. He's done just about every possible thing he can be to be a respected comedian. And then you've got other people like Kerry Marks who have done the circuit years, Josh Harry, Leo Kirst, Lewis Schaefer, Roger Monk. As you can name anyone. We've all put in the hard work. I've done 11 years on the comedy circuit. I've done the weekends at the comedy store, every possible thing you can do, every bad and good gig you can do. I mean, I won the comedy store gong show in 2012. I mean, come on. I've done like 2000 gigs and it's just so annoying because he just has gone with this attack that we're not bizarrely his like idol and friend Tom Stade is about to come on. So why are they saying it? And it it just doesn't hold up to reality at all, but they just, it's just saying things because he's like an SMP regime person. I I think it's, um, it's because in his mind, comedians have become, an identity group and it's it's much like you know diane abbott saying that um uh, a black tory minister or an asian tory minister isn't a real person of color um because they don't subscribe to a particular orthodoxy and it's the same isn't it you're not a real comedian unless you're woke um and he's trying to sort of rationalize that kind of impulsive dismissal by imagining you didn't you didn't kind of do the hard yards, you know, in the early bit of your career, even though he got a job on Stop the Week at 16. Um, so I think it's, I think that's the explanation. For him, comedians are an identity group and to be an authentic member of this group, you have to have woke opinions. If you don't, you're not a real comedian. Yeah, it could be that. It was such a bizarre attack. It's like, at least make your attacks somewhat plausible. But I don't, yeah, these people haven't watched it. They just say a thing, GB News bad. That's about as complicated as it gets. And the other person that did this was someone called Amanda Lovett, who appeared on GB News and then wrote this bizarre tweet. I just need to apologize to my new family. I'm so annoyed with my agent. I had no idea what the news channel was about. I'm absolutely disgusted to have sat next to a person that doesn't believe in diversity, equality and being yourself. This will never happen again. And I just wrote, thank you. Sitting next to people is literally how the Nazis happen. (laughs) But this was mad. I mean, I don't know. She was. I think she was sat next to Philip Davis when I had a look at the clip, but she might have meant... Calvin, because she was standing next to Calvin Robinson at some point. I just love the fact she had to apologize and go through this struggle session for being on GB News. And then someone <laughs> replied, if your agent got you onto GB News, you need a new agent that places for hard right extremists, COVID deniers and flat earthers. Firstly, the, the earth is a cone shape. All right, let's just get that out there. But the idea, the idea that it's hard right extremists, Andrew Doyle told me the other day heterosexuality is a hoax. Steve Allen, BBC-approved comedian from The Mash Report. Amy Nichol, the most woke person on earth, nice apart from her views. Josh Howey, very lefty, except doesn't like Corbyn. But these are so many lefties on the chat. I mean, hard right, extreme, it's just, all, what's going on, Toby? What, when will it end? It will, will this GB News madness ever end? Well, um, it doesn't seem to be putting off the viewers. Um, uh, as we know, I think, um, didn't, didn't GB News on average attract more viewers in prime time than Sky in the month of December. Um, or maybe it was just the final week of December or the penultimate week in December. Anyway, it was a really impressive stat. Um, GB News now beating not just Talk TV, I mean, that's a low bar, but actually beating 
the BBC News Channel and Sky News. Um, uh, so, you know, it's not putting off the viewers anyway, even if it is putting off the advertisers. Yeah, good point. We're doing very well with the viewers. And headliners, uh, my little show that I'm on, has been doing really well. We've been hitting huge numbers, tremendous numbers, as Trump would say. So we've been smashing it. Absolutely right. Um, oh, and I've got I've got some GB News news, which is yeah. um, I was recently um, cancelled uh by by the producer of Dubes and Co. because um, uh, they wanted to try out some other people. I mean, I'm not a regular on there, um, but I had a couple of gigs booked in, and they both got cancelled. And the producer was quite apologetic and said a, a new person had come in, and they wanted to try out some other people. And I was to, and I was like, why? And he said, well, to, to, well. Anyway, I, I got the impression that uh, I'd been blacklisted, and uh, my my days on GB News were numbered. But actually, uh, he came back to me um, earlier this week and said, actually, we want to book you in every Tuesday on Jubes & Co. in February. So I'll be back on Jubes & Co. Hell of a reversal, that, isn't it? Uh, that, that's because I had a little word, Toby, in their ear. They said, oh, we're cancelling Toby. He's just, he's passed it. He's not a fresh voice. And I just put, put in a word and suddenly it all turns around. That's how it happens. Thank you. I don't, I don't like to brag, old, but... I, it's the old boys network. It's the old boys network. I kind of run it all. But um, And you managed to get a bit of hate yourself this week, Toby. Uh, Alistair Campbell, not your biggest fan. Good old Campbell one of the greatest people who did so much good for our nation. I mean, uh, Alistair Campbell replied to you, you did a tweet, which we'll sort of talk about in a minute, about the census. And he wrote, in the overly populated right-wing media bollocks sphere, quite a good phrase, 98% of mainly white, male, middle-aged, underachieving men love trying to work up their followers, inverted commas, I don't know why it's inverted commas, they are followers, into getting really steamed up and angry at 0.2% of the population who are already among the most abused slash discriminated. And I just said, wait till Alistair finds out he's also white, male, and middle-aged, unless he's actually arguing he's old now, because he's older than you, he's quite old. And I said, still, at least he's not underachieving. He was instrumental in ruining both Britain and Iraq. I mean, he is a high achiever <laughs> in a sense. He gets stuff done. Were you shocked by this, Toby? And, and what was your counter? He quote-tweeted a tweet that was actually automatically generated by the Daily Skeptic to promote a piece on the... Uh, UK census, um, which for the first time in 2021 asked a question about gender identity. Um, and the question revealed that far fewer people identify as trans or non-binary than had previously been claimed by Stonewall and other LGBTQ plus lobby groups. And the ironic thing about Alistair Campbell's tweet is he got really angry um, about what he what he saw as you know people like me um, attacking yet again this beleaguered minority, and um, and and quoted the zero point two percent figure. So to be clear, the, the 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 in the census they asked everyone in England and Wales, age sixteen and over, if they identified as a different sex to the sex on their birth certificate, and the percentage. Uh, answering um, yes to that question was um, about 0.5%. But when asked to identify, when asked to indicate how they identified, um, only 0.1% put trans man and 0.1% put trans woman. And I think 0.026% put non-binary. So in the Daily Skeptic, our headline was only 0.2%. Um, uh, identify as trans in the UK census. Um, And the whole point of quoting that figure is that's much, much lower 
than the LGBTQ plus lobbyists claim the size of the trans population is. But Alistair Campbell, in his fathomless, bottomless ignorance, um, <laughs> quoted that figure as if to somehow buttress his point. It made us seem even meaner because we were talking about only 0.2% of the population, not realising that in the eyes of the trans rights activists, in the eyes of the Stonewall lobbyists, if you say the trans population is only 0.2%, you are a transphobe, you are a bigot. (laughs) So he's sort of inadvertently, unwittingly outing himself as a transphobe in an attempt to brand me a transphobe. I mean, he's so, it it was sad, really. Um, sad that he didn't realise the kind of politics of the tweet or what this kind of debate is about. And I guess he just hasn't been following it. Um, But uh, yeah, I I mean, I did think it was actually interesting that uh, the figures are so much lower than have been claimed. I mean, you know, um, I worked out, I've just done a piece about this for The Spectator. And um, as I'm sure you know, I think we talked about it a couple of episodes ago. In Scotland, there is this gender recognition Reform Gender Recognition Act Reform Bill, um, which has now been passed by the Scottish Parliament. Nicola Sturgeon has used up what little political capital she has left in order to railroad this bill through the Scottish Parliament. And I calculated that, you know, if 0.1% of the population of England and Wales identify as trans women, um, uh, it does seem extraordinary that Nicola Sturgeon could be... Um, uh, no, as trans women or trans men, it seems extraordinary that Nicola Sturgeon could be using up all this political capital to, um, you know, to benefit what is probably about 10,000 Scots people in Scotland. I mean, there, there aren't many votes in that. And I guess it, it, the broader point, I think, um, is that in the ongoing debate between trans rights activists and gender critical feminists, which is really about, you know, trans women, not about trans women and trans men or even non-binary people. It's about whether trans women should be able to access, you know, women's refuges, women's changing rooms, should be able to be housed in women's prisons, compete against biological women in women's sports and so forth. They're talking about 0.1% of the population and the conflict in, in between, you know, the rights of trans women and the rights of women. It's a conflict between 0.1% of the population and 50% of the population. You know, I mean, each group can plausibly be claimed to be acting for, on the one hand, 0.1% of the population, and on the other, half the population. So it does seem extraordinary that that debate is still ongoing and uh, hasn't been resolved yet in favour of the gender-critical feminists. I mean, it's such an imbalance. I know, you know, minority rights, no matter how small the number, their rights should be protected. But when there is a genuine conflict of rights and you have to decide, you know, you have to come down on one side or the other. I mean, it's, I hate to use the word, but it's a binary decision. Um, It does seem extraordinary that that somehow people could think this is a difficult choice to make. Who shall I side with? Half the population or about 10,000 people? Well, it's probably slightly more than that. I think in England and Wales, it's um, it's 48,000 people. Uh, who are, who, who've said on the latest UK census that they identify as trans women. Well, Toby, the answer to that is simple. 50% are women, but amongst that much smaller percentage, <clears throat> some of them are men. So the men are winning because <laughs> the, tra- you know, the, trans, the men that are trans are beating the women in the argument because we're just men and we're better. You see, even though it's only a tiny, tiny percentage. That's my point there. If it wasn't clear, you were you looked like you were looking blank. So I had to make the, the misogyny even clearer. I, think, I guess, you know, on the one hand, I, I've always thought that the campaigning 
tactics engaged in by trans rights activists and Stonewall are a bit ham-fisted. Um, they don't seem to be making many friends um, or winning this argument in the public square. So um, in the British Social Attitude Survey, uh, the most recent British Social Attitude Survey, the British public have generally got more liberal on a range of social issues, with the exception of the issue of whether it should be easier for people to um, identify, to, to, to change their birth sex on their birth certificates. Um, and on that issue, public support has fallen by 21 points in the past two years. And I think that's largely because the idea of campaigning that Stonewall and TRAs seem to have got into their heads is that if anyone disagrees with them, they immediately smear them as a turf or a bigot or a transphobe. And clearly that's not really working. Um, but on the other hand, you know, maybe we should step back and think, well, given how infinitesimally small this group is as a percentage of the UK population, as revealed in the latest UK census, maybe they've actually done a really decent job of drawing attention to the issues they're concerned about. I mean, politicians have been agonising in the British Parliament about whether to, about how to reform the Gender Recognition Act since 2018. We changed toilets up and down the country into gender-neutral toilets to accommodate this tiny percentage of the population. You know, um, uh, politicians are tying themselves in knots when asked how they define a woman. You know, they've dominated political debate um, in this country now for something like four or five years. And to do that, given that, you know, it's one in 500 people at most, is actually in some ways quite impressive. So maybe what the TRAs should do is forget about trying to change government policy. They should go into the PR business because they're clearly quite gifted at, you know, highlighting issues which only affect a tiny minority of people. So, you know, if they, if they, they, I think you made the peanut allergy analogy, didn't you? Um, yes, but, you know, maybe if, maybe if people who suffer from the peanut, peanut allergy could hire the TRAs, you know, they could just <laughs> ban peanut dishes in restaurants across the country. Yeah. So you're referring to my now famous uh, peanut allergy analogy, which I made on GB News. Exactly the same point. Just before we went on to discuss the topic that 0.5%, you know, identified as different to their sex at birth. I thought, oh, I wonder how many people have a peanut allergy because I went out with a woman who had a peanut allergy and it was very, it, it's tricky. It's quite extensive. There were, there were long interviews with waiters. You know, was it cooked? What, what was in the oil that it was cooked in? You know, did it touch nuts? Has anyone looked at a nut in the last two weeks? So it was, it was extensive nut questions every time you tried to order in a restaurant. And if you went to the supermarket, it was extensive label checking for anything nut adjacent. It's, it's actually quite difficult. And my point was, we don't really change society for, for those people. We make a few accommodations, the labeling and so on, but we don't really turn ourselves upside down. And those people can die. If they get a whiff of a nut, they can die right in front of you, Toby. And of course, some people would say trans people can die. You're erasing our existence because of this tenuous argument that, you know, the, the, to the um, stigma against them makes them commit suicide. But actually, there's no real evidence for that. It's much more likely the other way around that they have this issue of, of not knowing their gender and therefore they're depressed, etc. But anyway, not people can die and yet we don't turn over society for them. That to me suggests, and we're very generous here, Toby, that it's actually not necessarily the trans and non-binary people doing it because, as you say, how can, I mean, they must have amazing PR, how can 0.5%, and it's actually probably even less, it was just, that was the survey, but it was actually 262,000, which to me came out as 0.4%. It depends how you do the figures, but... Well, yeah, that, 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 that was the figure for everyone who said, I think the, the answer to the question was, do you identify with the sex um, 
that was that 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 is on your birth certificate, and the number of people answering no, I think, was about two hundred sixty-five thousand. But not everyone answered that question. But then, if you but then people were then given the opportunity to say what gender they identified as, and a far smaller number than yeah, identified yeah. as trans women or trans women or trans men or non-binary. But even if we take the highest number of zero point five percent, it's the same number. I, I and it's only a quick Google check that I found out the number of adults with an allergy was the same percentage. So my point is they obviously have people working on their behalf, activists who are not trans and non-binary, but who are using it to reshape society radically and using that as their, as their battering ram to do so. Is that correct? Yes. I think that, that, that must be the explanation. It's, it's not the, it's not that the trans people themselves are unbelievably successful lobbyists. It's that they've attracted all these allies who imagine that this is the kind of civil rights struggle of their generation. Uh, but I'm not sure I... The peanut allergy is quite good, but not perfect, because we have made lots of changes uh, to, um, you know, ordinary life to accommodate those with peanut allergies, such Some. as, you know, including warnings in labels, um, warnings on menus in restaurants and the rest of it. Um, I think a better analogy is one I come up with in my latest spectator piece, which is men who suffer <laughs> from shy, <laughs> well, men who suffer from shy bladder syndrome. Now, alphas like you and me, Nick, wouldn't know anything about this, but let me tell you what shy bladder syndrome is. It's like you can't pee when someone is standing at the same block of urinals as you because the mere presence of another person makes you shy and it makes you ink well it makes your bladder shy and you, you you just cannot you're unable physically to pee until they leave the lavatory the public lavatory um and and according to some estimates about 25 percent of the male population suffer from shy bladder syndrome so you know but but for centuries their needs have just been completely ignored <laughs> along come this johnny come lately at best five percent probably much lower um uh kick up a bit of a fuss and suddenly urinals are ripped out of public lavatories up and down the country it's like you know if i if i god forbid suffered from shy bladder syndrome i'd be a little bit cheesed off that i've been just completely neglected my particular minority status my affliction has been blithely ignored for centuries you know and now yeah, overnight you know this much more energetic better represented group um uh, better represented as in better PR, um, uh, have achieved what, you know, I've only been dreaming about uh, overnight. Well, Toby, speaking of uh, alphas like us, I can confirm that when I met top G Andrew Tate, just before I met him, I know he's, he's struggling at the moment and a bit controversial. Just before I met him, I was washing my hands in the loo. He came in and this is a unisex toilet that they have at GB, which is very controversial. No one knows why they have it. Women hate it. In a unisex toilet, he went and his security guard and urinated with the cubicle door open in a unisex toilet so he has no shy bladder syndrome can confirm top g i mean that's quite bold. he probably didn't realize it was unisex because that's quite bold leaving the cubicle door open in a unisex that's bathroom. i guess that's 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 kind of um that is quite ostentatious leaving the cubicle door open that's like advertising that you don't suffer from shy bladder syndrome <laughs> you don't mind if someone is peering that's over a- your shoulder to see how you're getting on as i imagine you were nick um that's aggressive, top aggressive bladder syndrome <laughs> yeah i know well i always thought that's the way that a lot of men used to do it. you can't really be bothered shutting the door but in an all men's toilet of course he probably didn't realize it was unisex but he didn't even occur to top g anyway we'll get on to him later but interesting to interesting analogy still think mine's better but hey the, the listener can decide um 
Well, let's move on from shy bladders to a great man. There's no link there at all. Uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson is to be re-educated. So the College of Psychologists of Ontario recently threatened to withdraw Peterson's practicing license unless he can... Oh, completed a social media re-education course to review, reflect on, and ameliorate his professionalism in public statements. Plus, he has to pay for the course himself with classes with the psychologist until the state's concerns are properly ameliorated. So it's essentially a sort of struggle session for Jordan Peterson. Can you imagine, Toby, they just get him in a room and they like, say climate change is real, Jordan. He's like, well, that depends what you mean by real and what you mean by climate and what you mean by change. It's a pretty complicated question. And they're like, say Elliot Page is a strong man. He's like, no, I think that's silly. She's a, bl- a bloody woman. And they're like, say that plus size model is, uh, is, is beautiful. No, sorry, she's not beautiful. She's bloody fat. Hey, that's, it would go something like that, wouldn't it? Because these are some of the statements he's in trouble for. I he said that I think, page. Yeah, I, I know. Yeah, those are the statements he got in trouble for and, and also for criticizing Justin Trudeau. So, yeah, um, that was the most outrageous of all. Um, but, yeah, I think if he gave the replies, <laughs> you just rehearsed <laughs> for him. He's going to be in that tr- struggle session for a long time. Um, yeah, it was outrageous and well done him for refusing to submit to this re-education training camp and uh, instead going public with it. And I think he's attracted quite a lot of support, including from the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal, as well as the leader of the opposition in Canada. Um, I think that the what the uh, Association of Psychologists in Ontario or whatever the professional um, body is um, are, are beginning to regret that they took on Peterson. It's mad, isn't it? I mean, there's been loads of articles about it. We don't need to do too much on it, but it's just so insane that this is where we are. Basically, he has different political opinions, so he needs to, we need to check his thinking, to quote the UK police. Well, yeah, and it, I think it, it's great that he's um, managed to draw attention to what is um, a very common and pernicious form of cancel culture, which we encounter a lot at the Free Speech Union, which is when um, a professional association threatens to uh, withdraw your license or your your um, ability to practice um, uh, if you don't uh, denounce your your you know your former self and if you don't submit to some kind of uh, retraining. Um, we come across it again and again. It's certainly not confined to. Ontario, it's ubiquitous across British professional associations too, um, and it it it's it, 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 it the reason it's such a sinister form of cancel culture is because these organisations are essentially threatening to um, uh, with to remove your ability to practice your profession, i.e., destroy your livelihood if you don't conform to woke orthodoxy, um, and it's quite hard to you can't challenge that in the courts as easily as you can someone. Um, dismissing you from your job for saying something perfectly lawful, but which contravenes work orthodoxy. You know, you have, a, you, as an employee, you have various employment rights. And, you know, if you think you've been unfairly dismissed, you can take your employer to the employment tribunal and you can even appeal that decision if it doesn't go your way. But there's no equivalent judicial process when it comes to resisting these attempts to kind of force you to conform by professional associations. So it's deeply sinister and um, incredibly widespread and certainly not confined to Canada. And, Peterson has now hit them with a legal challenge, I believe. I don't know if he's going to come to the Free Speech Union, Toby. That would be a coup, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, we don't have um, a Free Speech Union sort of sister organisation in Canada, but I want to try and set one up. But I have actually been talking to Jordan Peterson about that, and I'm hoping that this will um, uh, be the catalyst that um, helps us set one up. All right, brilliant. 
I was only joking, but it will actually possibly happen one day. <laughs> so do you want to do our first of many adverts, Toby? Yes. Again, it's only two for the listener. I, I'm torn there between boasting about how much advertising we get and not wanting to, the listener to think he's going to have to sit to a lot of adverts. So I, I sort of say it's loads of adverts, but it's two. But let's it's do two. that one. Here's the first one, and um, it is from our uh, most loyal uh, sponsor, Thor Holt. If you've heard enough of Thor's dad jokes in 2022, rest assured, he's promised to begin 2023 more sensibly. So he sent in some short bits of feedback from a couple of his clients. The first feedback note for Thor is from a company owner that employs him as a non-executive director to help him aggressively scale up and exit his Yorkshire-based business. The owner of that business says, Thor, you're underselling yourself. You do what you say on the tin, but better. You've absolutely turbocharged me, properly stoked my fire. The second note is from the owner of a multi-award winning Scottish IT firm. She says, Thor is like Marmite. Love it or hate it. He's honest, authentic, funny, clever and super talented. We've laughed and cried and he is just amazing at what he does. If I need help with strategic presentations, I never go anywhere else. I feel fortunate to always have him in my corner. I hate Marmite, but bloody love this man. You can read 80 more client recommendations like that and connect with Thor today at linkedin.com slash in slash Thorholt. That's linkedin.com slash in slash Thorholt, T-H-O-R-H-O-L-T. Thanks, Thor. All right, let's move on to an occasional segment, which we call the Top G Spot, because it's our occasional segment on Andrew Tate, the ongoing story. Now, I know he's not everyone's favorite but the case is ongoing, and I didn't really believe it at the start. And now I, I have to say I believe it less and less as it goes on. So the latest developments are, one, his lawyer has come out and basically said it's all nonsense. And there are many irregularities in the way the prosecution are going about it. I didn't watch the whole thing because it was subtitled and it was, it was a bit dull. But And two of the women who are sort of meant to be part of the case have come forward and said, well, no, we love Tate. He's, he's not done any of this. And they've spoken out on, I think, Romanian TV. Another thing that happened was I was listening to Tim Poole's podcast, and there was a statement, and this Eliza person started reading it out. I think it's Eliza Blue. And at first, I didn't realize it was her. I just thought, oh, who's reading out this statement? And the statement sounded incredibly generic. It was a statement from an alleged victim. But it was very, very generic and virtue signaling, and it could have been written by any sort of regime puppet. And I just thought, this sounds rings so false to me. But then she started breaking down with emotion. I was thinking, why is she crying about this obviously nonsense statement to me? And I realized it was Eliza Blue, who's like this person who's very much an advocate for survivors as she calls them, and people have suffered, you know, various abuse, sexual abuse, and so on. And she's communicated with Elon Musk on this. And, and that's all good. I mean, you know, I do, I do think Twitter's had a big problem with that. And she's been tackling that. But I suddenly thought, why is she buying into this? And then afterwards, Tim Poole sort of challenging us saying, well, 85% of people who responded to our poll said that they thought he was innocent. What do you think? And she's like, yeah, well, let's see in the court. But she just said, I believe all survivors. And I can understand why having, in her, having been through some sex trafficking thing herself, she would, she would be like that. As that's that's fair enough, but to me, that's you know, it's not very objective, is it? If you're just going to believe all survivors, so I, I have questions about that. And then there was this thing where Tate had allegedly gone to hospital, and no one knew why. But some people speculated it was because he had a heart issue, which is ongoing. He's apparently had that for a long time, which I didn't know about. And the last Tate thing I'll say is there was this bizarre article. Whether you hate Tate or think he's guilty or innocent, this uh, brainwashing teachers, and I, I covered it in the Daily Skeptic. This 
this thing where teachers were having to undo the brainwashing of Andrew Tate and essentially replace it with their own brainwashing. They say we're horrified that boys have been listening to Tate and they want to get rich online and things like this. And we sort of find out what they've learned from Tate and we feed in different information to them and we show them a pyramid that says like how liking Tate will lead to sort of crime. And I just thought it was kind of bonkers. Like even if you hate Tate, the idea that clearly boys have been failed. They're being, they're being failed by the education system. They're falling behind. Men are hated in the culture in many ways. Men are discriminated against in many laws. And men die more and they do all the hard jobs. Blah, blah, blah. We know it's a tough time for men and boys. And then your response is not to say, okay, how could we listen? How could we do more? Your response is to say, you're wrong. We need to reprogram your brain from these dangerous Andrew Tate ideas when clearly these young boys are going to Tate because of a lack of male guidance and, and the hatred of masculinity in the culture. Any comment on any of that, Toby? Yes, I do think that, uh, I mean, I, I was um, alarmed to see that um, uh, the arrest of Andrew Tate, um, you know, and and him being charged with these various unspeakable offences, even though, you know, the trial hasn't taken place and he certainly hasn't been found guilty yet um has 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 already led to um uh, a kind of moral panic in schools which seem to be in a permanent state of moral panic but this moral panic is about the toxic influence of andrew tate on teenage boys um and i think they're wildly ex- first of all they're assuming he's guilty and then they then they're going on to wildly exaggerate the influence of andrew tate i mean the vast majority of teenage boys, I'm sure, have never heard of Andrew Tate. But nonetheless, they're talking as if he is, you know, someone who they're they they they're completely enthralled to play his YouTube videos. They're all enrolled at Hustlers University or the real world, as it's now called, as only you seem to know. Um, <laughs> uh, and now, and it's another reason to scale up the already ubiquitous kind of um, training in secondary schools about how toxic masculinity is as part of sex and relationship education. And what that means, Nick, is bringing in organizations like Everyday Sexism um, to essentially browbeat boys about how toxic being male is. Um, uh, And, you know, as as if they haven't already got that message loud and clear, you know, (laughs) from the regime, as you would put it, um, that's going to have to be kind of amplified even more uh, in order to somehow counter the effect of the of of Andrew Tate who has now emerged as this kind of pantomime bogeyman to justify paying all these kind of uh, uh, anti-toxic masculinity training and diversity organizations who are already you know making millions from delivering these programs in schools they're not going to make even more money um uh, it's just it's uh, it was it was it was horrifying um the point you make about you know believing survivors and this this phrase believe believe survivors uh, believe victims it does fly in the face of the presumption of innocence because if you believe the victim if you call the victim a survivor then you're automatically assuming that whoever it is they're accusing is guilty which is the presumption of guilt even if they haven't yet had a trial um, but I think I'm, I, and the reason of course for the why we believe in the presumption of innocence is because it's better to let a guilty person go free than it is to imprison an innocent person. But I think doesn't the opposite rule apply in the court of public opinion, particularly for media commentators like you? Isn't isn't it doesn't it behoove you as a media commentator to presume guilt 
rather than innocence. Because actually, in the media, isn't it better to falsely accuse someone who's innocent than to defend someone who turns out to be guilty? You mean tactically better for my reputation? I mean, from a career point of view. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Unfortunately, I'm not the kind of person that's able to make those calculations. So I'm not quite as um, shrewd as you. I just sort of go off, you know, my actual beliefs. And I'm <laughs> not saying that you don't, of course. <laughs> but I just I just say what I think. And and yes, of course, if he's guilty, it'll look bad for me. But I just don't believe it. The more I see about it, the, the less I believe it. Because Tate's only... He's guilty of the things he says, I believe. Like the, he, the things he says, you know, I, I'm perfectly prepared if you think those are bad, you know, that he has these webcam studios and he tells the girls to sort of shut up or whatever, you know, like the things he says are sort of reasonably bad, you know, and that's enough. But I don't think he's done the actual or the criminal things. And that's my mm. belief. And I could be wrong. But yeah, like you say, of course, it could look bad for me. But then again, I am doing the right thing, as you say, morally by sticking with the presumption of innocence yeah. so yes well, my career will suffer is, but my my morals yeah. will win through. has there been apart from this statement that was read out on tim pool's podcast has there been any solid evidence that he's guilty of any of these no. criminal offenses no there's um, no, no but then again we're not allowed to see it. i think the lawyer from what I, I gathered was saying that even he hasn't been allowed to see the case so we don't really know what this case is they're cook, they're cooking up and it's very easy to cook these things up i think a lot of people are sick of it they're sick of the fact that epstein's clients got away with it. Epstein himself got away with it for a very long time. And now they, they see this and they sort of go, wow, this, this stinks a bit. We don't really believe this. We just think this is a guy they want to get. That's kind of how I feel. But, well, but I'm, who I'm, knows? I'm, I'm, oh. I'm, keep, I'm, keep, I'm less foolhardy than you and I'm keeping an open mind. Um, yeah. But, um, and I'm, you know, I'm, I, I don't think it's beyond the realms of possibility that he is guilty of some of the things he's been accused of. But I would like at least to see some of the evidence. And I'm, a little bit surprised that the Romanian authorities haven't leaked any of the evidence yet. Um, you'd think some of it would start to trickle out by now. And um, mm-hmm. as you say, you'd expect more people like the woman whose statement was read out on Tim Pool's show to come forward unless they're all... I mean, presumably they're not imprisoned in Andrew Tate's basement in his Romanian compound anymore. They've been released since... Uh, I mean, I know there was this... Um, that the, the alarm was supposedly... Um, uh, uh, set off by a woman who managed to obtain a cell phone and contacted her boyfriend and then contacted the US embassy in Romania and that supposedly triggered the arrests and but but you know why haven't we heard more from her um I, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, if they're released if he and his brother and 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 the two gangsters moles are, are released um in the not too distant future uh, do, do you think why did um, someone asked me I think no James Dellingpole asked me in our most recent podcast why did um, top G convert to Islam. What was that about? Well, so I've got two answers to that. One is that I think it's genuine, and two is that I think it's shrewd. And I, I sort of think it's both genuine and shrewd. So he was hanging out, obviously, in, in Dubai a lot and in the Middle East, and he has a lot of friends out there who are Muslims. And one of them, the, the very literal reason is his friend was there praying, and he sort of just said, Why don't you pray with me? Or Tate said, or, you know, one of them, or he Tate felt moved to. So he was there with his friend at the mosque, and he suddenly felt moved to, to pray. The other more cynical answer is that it, it just it's good for him when he got just after he got cancelled, it's shrewd for him to sort of say, well, I, I'm a Muslim now. And, you know, you can't and then it's harder to attack him. And then in the woke world and also or that hasn't really worked. And also mm. he suddenly gets the backing of all the uh, of Muslims around the world. And, you know, when true Geordie attacked him and, and made a joke about Muslims blowing mm. themselves up, he got absolutely destroyed by Tate. who just said, why are you uh, why are you attacking my religion? And all the Muslims, like, yeah, how dare you? And then he got cancelled. True Geordie did so. 
it was shrewd in that sense. But I do think it's genuine. I think he he wants to believe in God. He, he he's been annoyed about how Christianity has, has declined so much. Though he sort of sometimes has said, when I'm in Romania, I'm a Christian because it's a 99 percent Christian country, and elsewhere I'm a sort of Muslim. It's, it's like he's saying I, he used to be an atheist, famously, and talk about it a lot. He's realised now God is real. He realised initially that if you want to know how he initially did it, he said that he realised there's so much evil, as we've all noticed lately, there's so much evil in the world and, and directed at him as well that he thought, okay, you know, law of physics means there's an equal force of good. And Michael Knowles kind of debunks his reasoning on that. But let's say that's how he came to it. He said, okay, so the God must be real. So then he decided that, but he, but he was so disappointed that Christianity was so weak, he's ended up with Islam, though he does in Romania respect that Christianity is still strong. So that's a kind of long answer to that. I it reminds me of a story. Um, so um, back uh, when back at the kind of uh, height of the New Labour era, I was quite friendly with um, a New Labour spin doctor who worked for a cabinet minister, and um, and he and I used to get up to some quite bad stuff together. And um, and and I remember asking him, you know, what will you do if if any of this ever comes out, you know. Um, how will you square it with your career as a spin doctor for New Labour? And he said he was he was he was from up north, and he said, "Is a born again Christian?" And that was his that was going to be his strategy um, if if the if any of these scandal if, if any of this scandalous behaviour ever hit the headlines. Um, and maybe that is the kind of you know maybe that's the twenty first century most, most contemporary ver- more contemporary version of that. If things do blow up, you become a Muslim. Could be, Toby. I wonder what you've done. Again, we come back to this thing, like you're saying, I'm this bad person who's going to defend Tate, but actually I'm the, the good person defending all these people who behave far worse than me. All right, well, that's Top G dealt with for another week. You can uh, write into me about why I'm evil if you want. Um, but let's do Prince Harry, the top H, or the bottom H probably, probably one of the most hated people in the world at this point. But I mean, we have to cover it. He's been in the news so much. He said he killed 25 Taliban. That was extremely unwise. He said his todger nearly froze off. That was quite strange. It's quite a strange one to throw into the first book. I thought you might hold something back, Toby. Uh, Toby? <laughs> I said Toby. Hold something back, Toby, about you. I don't know what that means. There's some sort of Freudian thing going on there. Hold something back, Harry, about your uh, todger for like book four. He also <laughs> said Camilla was evil, basically. And But then strangely, he defended Lady Susan Hussey, which I thought was a bit like that meme, the, the worst person you know just made a good point. Um, and then he also said some things about Dan Wooden just recently, that he was a sad little man. Any take on the Harry shenanigans, Toby? Yeah, I was, uh, well, I guess um, my first thought when I started to read the revelations slipping out was um, Spare seems as though it's been written by Jeremy Clarkson. You know, it it seems designed to sabotage Harry. Uh, Everything in it, virtually, uh, from William breaking his necklace um, when they kind of um, ended up tussling um to his bizarre uh, admission that he killed 25 taliban insurgents and said didn't really bother his conscience because for him it was just like removing chess pieces from the board uh and to say that given knowing you know first of all that it's a breach of um etiquette within the military and likely to upset a lot of his former military colleagues um but also you know knowing it might endanger his own security, because in the in the book he also complains about not being able to afford um, uh, proper security, because after all they only got forty five million from their Netflix deal. Um, 
so that that that's all kind of it's all a bit strange as though you know he he's 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 he can't quite stay on message um uh, but um uh, and not surprising i don't know if you saw but there was a poll today in the mail which shows that um harry's popularity with the british public has nosedived um since uh, the publication of spare there was also quite a funny um a uh, bit of VT on GB News yesterday to coincide. Was it? Was it? Maybe it was this morning to coincide with uh, Spare going on sale, and I think it was from Waterstones in Piccadilly, which is one of the largest bookshops in London. And uh, all these reporters, broadcasters, had turned up to interview. You know, the first people to buy Spare, and like apparently there were like fifty reporters and maybe one customer the entire day. You know, um, <laughs> I don't think it's going to be a hot seller. Yeah, that's interesting, and. When you talk about the um, off-message 25 kills and their chess pieces, that does sort of seem more like the old Harry. It's as if in that bit he's just sort of recounting the old military Harry and he's sort of forgotten to sort of square it with the new woke Harry. And maybe that's more who he really is. The only explanation I can think of is that, well, I think he subsequently said himself that he wanted to get this off his chest because talking about these things helps him process them and um, helps with his kind of mental health. It's a kind of cleansing operation. He had to confess to this, which has been preying on his conscience, something along those lines. Um, I, 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 my kind of more cynical explanation is that his his ghostwriter, kind of um, having having kind of tried to coax something even vaguely newsworthy out of Harry, um, uh, you know, at the end of. At the end of the kind of when he produced the first draft, he kind of showed it to the editor at Random House and they said, you know, this is all very bland. There's nothing here really we can sell into newspapers or broadcasters. The book's not going to get nearly enough attention. We need to spice it up. Go back, try and coax some more inflammatory headline grabbing confessions out of him. And that's when he got his condemnation of Camilla, um, uh, the stuff about his penis freezing and the 25 Taliban. (laughs) Yeah, that's also very, very plausible. Well, I'm happy to leave Harry there because we've had to cover on GB News loads. And frankly, I just don't really care that much. Though I do look forward to his book, I Was Brainwashed by Megan, which will be the, the, it'll be all the same stuff, but from a different angle of like, oh, I was abused by Megan. (laughs) One last thought. When Megan leaves him, as I think she probably will in due course, um, you know, leaves him for some tech billionaire and he has to come back to England with his tail between his legs and beg forgiveness from his brother and his father and to be readmitted into the court and kind of, you know, pensioned off somewhere. Um, Do you think Charles will say, well, Harry, I am prepared to forgive you. I know that it wasn't entirely your doing and your wife certainly ex-wife had a, had a big part to play but only one condition you've got to take the knee <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing I expect it, <laughs> yeah I expect he will do I expect he'll happily go down on one knee if it means two million pounds a year and you can get the cottage back <laughs> I agree <laughs> alright well now let's do our regular section bird watch <laughs> So it's going to be a slightly shorter bird watch than some of them, perhaps. But there's been a few interesting things. I mean, the bad man is back, as my friend Callum calls him. That means Tommy Robinson is back on Twitter. Isabella Riley is back. I don't know if you know her, but she's a sort of top troll on Twitter. She came back and immediately went straight back into top form, saying things like, friendly reminder, stop being fat. And fact, if he's not sexist, he's gay. So 
those are the kind of things that Isabella Riley posted. That's the kind of reason she got banned. She's sort of a just American uh, libertarian tr- troll. She's quite funny. She's back. A few people are back. I, I can see my following count going up. So there's other people back. I don't even know who they are. And the other thing that happened was the the next Twitter files dropped, Toby. But I was so busy trying to be like you, Toby, that I missed it. And um, what happened? Well, before we get on to the latest Twitter files revelations, why is it, do you think, that these people are coming back in dribs and drabs? Why isn't there just a kind of general big bang in which they all come back? Why is why are they only being readmitted slowly, do you think? Is that is that so they won't overwhelm Twitter and, and suddenly Twitter will go from being a kind of nice, happy place to this toxic wild west no i don't think it's that thought out i think it's really just uh, my theory is just as musk gets around to them people nudge him and say hey what about this person he goes oh yeah okay fine but he doesn't want to bring back everyone because he doesn't want to bring back for example alex jones so he can't just do it everyone so he has to look at them individually and go yeah okay fine so you think it's because it's um it, it's it's not rule-based there is no kind of rhyme or reason to it they haven't worked out a kind of policy um it's just when it when when Musk bothers to focus and somebody draws attention to a particular person who's been better, oh, oh yeah, okay, I'll let them back. Correct. I don't know why his voice was the same as Prince Charles, but yeah, exactly <laughs> that. You, uh, very different, I thought. Yeah. <laughs> so, any any other comments on Bird? You want to talk about the Barrington? Oh, well, thing? yeah, I was just going to say that the, the latest. Um, Twitter files, um, as posted by Alex Berenson, who is a former New York Times journalist who was banned from Twitter for a while uh, and is now back on. Um, he he reveals that a former Pfizer, sorry, no, a current member of the board of Pfizer um, used the lobbyist who's been involved in a lot of the other scandals disclosed in the Twitter files um, to lobby Twitter to uh, suppress a tweet by a former US government official uh, saying that natural immunity was actually more effective than vaccine-induced immunity and that the vaccine passports were therefore pointless, um, which is, which is you know, uh, perhaps not that surprising. But we didn't have any evidence until now that actually the board members of Big Pharma were involved in trying to suppress any sort of vaccine scepticism on social media platforms, but um, they did. And here's the evidence. Okay. Well, I unfortunately can't comment because like I said, I missed it, which is very rare for me, but I really have been very, very busy. Sorry, everyone. But we're still here smashing out the weekly skeptic. And we've got a second ad, Toby, which I thought I would read now. And it goes like this. Happy New Year. Now it's time to pay your tax and Christmas bills. Over some financial optimism, meet Dan Gaskin, fellow skeptic, free thinker, father of six, husband of one, and owner of Crest Mortgages. Dan is an ex-Royal Navy warfare officer who's driven warships, both run and sold a small company, and chose to become a mortgage and protection advisor because he genuinely enjoys looking after people. Also, nothing motivates Dan more than bringing you financial good cheer, even in January. For help with your house move, commercial mortgage, equity release, life insurance, or simply to talk through a financial issue that is vexing you in complete confidence, call 0116-502-3000, visit crestmortgages.co.uk, or connect with Dan directly on linkedin.com slash in slash Dan Gaskin, D-A-N-G-A-S-K-I-N. And the FCA compliant bit is Crest Mortgages is a trading style of Epiphany Investments Limited, which is an appointed representative of Open Work Partnership, a trading style of Open Work Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. We choose to be part of the Open Work Partnership and award-winning network. Your house may be repossessed if you do not keep up with the repayments on your mortgage. And once again, that is Dan Gaskin, 
0116-502-300, crestmortgages.co.uk, linkedin.com slash in slash Dan Gaskin. And Dan was kind enough to say thank you and, and, and tweet me and say I'd nailed the ad, which was good. And actually, I am about to try and get a mortgage myself. I'm uh, epically. I don't know if I can do That's the dream. Maybe, so I keep thinking I should actually contact Dan, but I'm sure he's very good. Yeah, thanks for advertising with the Weekly Skeptic. All right, well, now seems like a good moment to go to Will with our top stories of the week. So I'm here with Will Jones, editor of the Daily Skeptic, and we've got our usual story roundup, and there's some really good ones this week. Firstly, the White House COVID censorship machine. Now, this is very sinister. So Rob Flaherty, however you say his name, the White House director of digital media under Biden, contacted Facebook about vaccine misinformation and vaccine hesitancy, and he asked what they were doing about it. And he even asked what they were doing about WhatsApp, which is supposed to be for private messaging, I'm hoping. And he also said things like he wanted to reduce posts from Tucker Carlson and Tommy Lahren. And he said, why are these posts not being reviewed? So it was the Biden administration directly trying to influence Facebook on vaccine misinformation and meta in general. Will? Yeah, so this uh, more revelations from what was going on at the White House and the censorship of social media. And uh, we have this uh, revelation that's come out during a court case between uh, uh, Miss... Missouri and uh, <laughs> Missouri and um, Biden, and about uh, showing that that this digital uh, communications director Rob Flaherty, Flaherty as you say, whatever, however you say it, was repeatedly, persistently, and the lawyers involved in the case say coercively contacting Twitter, Facebook, Google, uh, YouTube, of course, there as well, and asking them repeatedly, "What are you doing about this so-called uh, misinformation?" He didn't call it so-called. That's what that, he called it misinformation and asking them, what are you doing about this? And making and they were and they kept coming back saying, uh, well, we're um, saying we're, we're complying and doing more and more, taking things down, uh, de-boosting things, shadow banning, reducing and, and also um, suspending accounts, banning people. Uh, and this is all being done at the direct and persistent and coercive even uh, behest of the of the White House. Uh, this is totally against the law in America. It's um, uh, it's contrary to the First Amendment of the Constitution, indulging, engaging in censorship, uh, and that's what this court case is about. So it'll be very interesting to see what courts make of this. But we really have to hope that they're not going to find some some weasel way of giving them a free pass. Yeah. All right. Absolutely. And let's do this next one, which we covered on headliners on GB News. Boris Johnson was secretly nudged into wearing a mask by these sage scientists. So Professor David Halpern claimed that he used this sort of, that word again, coercive skills to get Boris to follow his own rules. And there's this ridiculous bit where they said, we showed him a slide pack at one point. It had a series of images of pretty much every single world leader wearing a mask, then a picture with him not. And this was enough to break Boris's will. And we learned that sage are even more sinister than we thought, and that Boris was even weaker than we thought. I mean, this would not have worked on me, I, I, I suggest, Will. But why didn't they just show him a series of slides of like a functioning economy or carry crossed out or or not getting ousted in a in a party coup? If you can influence Boris that easily, think of all the things we could show him, Will. <laughs> yeah, so as as you say, more sinister than we imagined. Uh, Professor David Halpern, Sage member, gave an interview uh, this week where he he said that he turned his powers of subliminal persuasion onto I don't use those words onto Boris himself because he wasn't he wasn't wearing a mask enough he wasn't setting an example because as we know masks are largely about psychology compliance fear and so having the leader not complying uh, you know his the free spirit must be broken and so they they deployed various um, subtle 
subliminal techniques. Like in particular, the main example given was this slideshow, as you've said, uh, where they just showed him, kept showing him images of, of of world leaders wearing a mask, and and him, the naughty, the naughty boy, not wearing a mask. So, um, and and it and it seems to have worked sadly. So yeah, it doesn't doesn't say much for Boris, but then we we, we knew that he wasn't the. Uh, he wasn't the strongest and uh, the world leader with a um, stiffest spine, was he? Yes, and as you say, it's a good point about it's all about programming and fear, and that's why it was so crucial to get him to wear one for the messaging. A good point. Let's do this other quite sinister one. Government ministers draw up plans for social distancing, face masks, and work from home to, quote, save the NHS. And what really annoys me about this is that Let's just fix the NHS. Let's stop stop trying to fix people. Why don't we? The idea that we're going to have to do this every winter, just have this kind of guy, yeah, just stay home if you could, wear a pointless mask. Like it just drives me so mad. Well, it's the wrong way around, isn't it, Nick? The <laughs> NHS is supposed to save us uh, from, from uh, our, our various diseases and ailments, not uh, not us save the NHS by staying at home and doing all kinds of nonsense things like wearing a mask. Um, so, so the, the ministers um, haven't said that they're actually planning currently to do this but it has come out that the ministers have been have been preparing contingency plans uh for what they might have to do were things to get worse and it um and it included all the all the usual junk that we thought we'd got away from last winter of masks social distancing working from home all the stuff that uh, we thought we'd left left behind and so the worrying thing isn't so much that they're actually about to jump this on us although who knows? I mean, this, these things, these stories, if you remember, during the, during the pandemic had a, had a strange habit of going from rumours and things being considered to, to rules and laws um, in a matter of days. But that, is, but that, isn't, the, that isn't the main uh, take home of this story, I don't think, at the moment. It's that the government clearly is still in that frame of mind and that mindset that this is how they intend to uh, respond and that they they have not learned they have not moved away they have not realized these things don't work uh, and that they're far more harmful than any benefits and advantages that they can bring if any and and they still fully intend and plan uh, to use them in, in the in the future and and that's the, that's the really really worrying uh, thing about about this story I think Nick yeah and the only thing they said they'd rule out is lockdowns but of course we can't trust that either. And what and what do they mean by lockdown? You know, it's, right. it's what you know. Do they just mean that we're not going to do a stay at home order? It's often a very narrow a narrow thing, but it doesn't mean they won't ban all gatherings above six or, or, or whatever. You know, um, it's um, it's a slippery thing. It depends how, how how broad is your definition of lockdown. You know, we um, would um, Daily Skeptic would define lockdown um, as being as being. Uh, as including all of these restrictions, anything that we didn't do before 2020, um, we would we would count as a form of lockdown. But uh, when the when politicians use it, they often mean just the very narrow requirement to uh, the, the the rule to stay at home. Yes, very good point as well. Absolutely. Should we do this uh, slightly more silly end of COVID madness? It's still bad, obviously, but it's just quite silly because it involves handball, which is an inherently unserious game but the handball world cup demands all players be triple vaccinated tested daily and quarantined for five days if positive yeah you're revealing your prejudices there nick against this <laughs> against the sport although to be fair it's, it's not the it's not a sport that you see on a on bbc or itv particularly often is it it's not a no. is it even an olympic sport i don't know maybe it is um, Probably. it's got a world but, cup uh, but this this story uh came from uh came from iceland and the the team there protesting um and complaining about this about this rule that they are that the the world championship is insisting uh, on on extraordinary 
requirements for their players to um, they have to be fully boosted um, and they have to and they'll be tested and they'll be they'll be excluded if they if they test positive. Um, just absolutely um, extraordinary, and it's interesting to contrast this actually with um, the Australian Open, which has now confirmed that they're they're not even going to test. Um, and this is great; they're not even going to test players for COVID, and um, and players will uh, will be allowed to play even if they they test positive for COVID or would test positive for COVID in the Australian Open. I mean, the the, the turnaround there compared to last year, where they um, where they literally caused an international incident by kicking out. Djokovic from the country is, is, is incredible. So um, so that's good news there from the Australian Open and a sign of some sense. But handball, uh, not so much. That's the biggest, like you say, turnaround ever. Australia's gone from camps, quarantine camps, to, oh, we're not even testing anymore. That's the biggest turnaround since my ex-girlfriend was trying to get me to wear a mask and her mum. And then last time I saw her, she went, that was wrong, wasn't it? They don't work. Didn't get an apology, but I, I did get an acknowledgement that she was wrong. <laughs> so yeah, heck of a turnaround. Slightly more... Um, well, they're all serious, but this one's sort of very dark. Excess non-COVID deaths surge to 30,000 since April as deaths in week before Christmas hit 20% above average. Yeah, extraordinary uh, levels of excess deaths in the last couple of weeks. And the new figures are out this morning um, where, uh, again, 20% um, excess again. And uh, I mean, there are bank holidays at this time of year, but they haven't, those haven't put the numbers down um, below the average. So um, extraordinary. And, and so we've been keeping track of how many excess non-COVID deaths, the deaths that aren't attributed due to COVID, not just with COVID, not just dying, um, not just testing positive for COVID, um, having got run over by a bus, but, but where the death certificate actually says COVID as the underlying cause. And we've been keeping uh, track of those uh, since, um, since April, uh, when there was a, they, a, a real surge began after last winter. And the total is now uh, running at 30,000 um, over and above what you would expect. Uh, just um, incredible number. M- many um, or most from something uh, heart-related or circulatory-related cardiovascular deaths, uh, very many of them. So, um, and the cause, of course, is much, the cause of those deaths is much disputed. There's been a, a, a number of articles this week on the, from the mainstream press, the Telegraph, the BBC Today, trying to, trying to argue that these are not, they're definitely not vaccine related, very, very clear about that. And, uh, and that's what they, that's what they claim, but they don't really cite any, um, any evidence or the, the evidence they cite is not um, is not solid, so it was, it's um, st- still a long way to go. It seems to um, to, to show uh, that the vaccines are playing a playing a role in in that. Yeah, absolutely. Sadly, um, let's shift on to climate change then and do this one. That's quite amusing. Insulating homes increases gas consumption. Cambridge report finds. Yeah, strange one. This one, um, Nick. The uh, a report from uh, academics at Cambridge University has uh, has looked at the impact over a number of years of housing uh, being uh, having insulation installed. You would expect, of course, that once a house is insulated, that um, gas use they'll become more efficient and gas use will go down. And yet, they uh, this study found that that did happen for a year or two, uh, but within two or three years. The consumption went up, um, which uh, was unexpected. Although the authors said that this is this is known as a rebound uh, effect. It's known in other in other fields and spheres as well, and it um, and it results from people changing their behaviour basically. Um, so now that the efficiency has gone up, the uh, the they, people start using more using more gas uh, because they uh, they can afford more. So um, so so of course the 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 big impact from that is that it really makes a mockery of this whole insulate britain 
campaign where these uh, eco uh, protesters were making such a big thing about insulation being the way. And this has been a big government uh, government drive as well, putting billions of pounds into trying to insulate the, the country, which when we're talking about old housing stock, Victorian housing stock, very expensive um, and not known to be particularly effective. And this report that shows that even where it is um, effective, it actually doesn't actually uh, reduce gas consumption. So yeah. more green boondoggles. It's hard to imagine those insulate Britain people sitting in the middle of the road could have been flawed in any way, but maybe they were. So let's finally go with no global warming for eight years and four months. Latest data show. That sounds good, Will. So that's right. At the beginning of every month, the uh, figures uh, come out from the satellite measurements made by uh, Dr. Roy Spencer in the United States, a very distinguished uh, meteorologist. And he has been tracking using satellite data how, how, much the, how the temperature has been changing globally. Uh, really, really important uh, data this. And he has found that this month, the, the pause, as, uh, as, it's, as it's known, since the global temperature rose on average, it's now been uh, well over eight years, eight years and four months, or in fact, 100 months exactly, Nick, um, since the global temperature last on average, uh, rose over a period. So you've got this this flat period where there's been no global warming, which is important because uh, it's just not part of the models. The models, all emissions have continued to grow considerably in that period. Carbon dioxide is supposed to be the control knob, according to the models and the uh, IPCC and the eco-alarmists. They're supposed to be the the control knob that controls the temperature. More carbon dioxide should lead very quickly to more warming. And that, so the fact that we're having this uh, this long period without any uh, detectable warming on a global scale is uh, is just contrary to their model, models. And it goes hand in hand with the fact that these models just keep on running hot. They just keep on predicting uh, far more warming than we're actually seeing. All right. Thank you very much, Will. So, of course, you can go to dailyskeptic.org for all those stories and more. Some stories even written by me, more the wokery ones than the, the climate ones, which we leave to Will and other smart people. But um, thanks very much, Will, and we'll see you again next week. Will, thanks, Nick. All right. Now let's do everyone's favorite section. It's Peak Woke. So, Toby, I have so many peak wokes this week. I did promise a bumper peak woke, and mine is very bumper AF. But I don't know if you want me to go first with some of mine, because I've got so many. So I'll do two very quick ones are just Jimmy Fallon's awful COVID song. He did a song about the new variant in the style of the uh, Love Shack song. That's not even a proper one. Elliot Page was rumored to be the next Superman, which is impressive, since, you know, there's some questions from some people about what gender she is. But uh, that, that would be amazing. So those are just two very brief ones. I'll do this one, though. Non-binary Welsh speakers have said they feel unable to express their identities in the language due to its gendered nature. Many non-binary people use the plural who, I don't know how you say it, it's NHW, as a gender-neutral singular pronoun. However, many professions are gendered, such as the word athro, I think something like that, for a male teacher, and another word for female. So you can't use Welsh if you're non-binary. And um, then I have two more, but do you want to go? I was going to um, flag up this story uh, from a couple of days ago, headline in the Telegraph, white narrators on nature programs could stop ethnic minorities from watching. So according to a report from last year funded by the Environment Agency, um, uh, this is a genuine concern. The reason that black, Asian and minority ethnic people are less likely 
to go for walks in England's beautiful countryside um, is, according to them, in part at least, because uh, the um, presenters of nature programmes on TV are white. So you may have thought that um, David Attenborough was a national treasure, um, a living saint, uh, but um, apparently he's been discouraging people of colour uh, from enjoying the beauties of nature and will have to be replaced by um, a black version. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, I thought that was um, pretty extraordinary. Pretty good. Um, I've got another one. Maybe I'll go with this one before I go with my absolute best one. This isn't even my best one. So an Ivy League trans male swimmer, Isaac Hennig, has gone up against men. So this was a, someone who was a woman, competed as a woman, then swapped to being a man. And this person's, I don't know how to say it anymore, her times were the same. But because she was now in the men's race, Isaac Hennig got absolutely destroyed and came 79th out of 83. And the sports site Outkick noted that a swimmer without a left arm and three others who specialize in different strokes were the only four who finished behind. So the person who was literally swimming in circles with one arm and the people who didn't really know the stroke were the only people this person beat because they were now in the man's game. So I, I, where do you even begin with that one, Toby? I mean, I mean, at least, at least it's not unfair. It's kind of unfair on, on her, him. Yeah, my, my second peak woke is Sam Mendes said in an interview with Laura Kuntzberg um, that he thought that gender-neutral awards at the Oscars were inevitable. Now... That could be interpreted in one of two ways, one of which I think deserves to win peak woke this week and the other doesn't. So the most peak woke interpretation is he is essentially saying that you scrap the categories of best actor and best actress, best supporting actor, best supporting actress, and just merge them into one category. Um, Because after all, what category should someone like Elliot Page be in if they're nominated for an Oscar for their performance as Superman? Um, uh, it's unfair on them. It's discriminatory. So you should scrap the categories altogether. Or maybe he was saying, and this I think is pretty reasonable, that in addition to Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor, etc., you have a gender-neutral award alongside those other two. Um, in both Best Supporting and Best Actor categories. Um, In which case, I think that's fine. I mean, you know, the solution, I think, to the conundrum of whether trans women should be able to compete against biological women in women's sports is, you know, no, you just need a third category, a trans category. So all the trans swimmers can compete against each other, all the trans wrestlers, all the trans weightlifters, etc. And that's perfectly fine. I don't have a problem with that at all. I don't think any gender critical feminist would have a problem with it either. Um, so if that's what Sam Mendes is proposing, a separate category um, for trans actors, fine. Uh, but it sounded like he's not proposing that, which wouldn't be very controversial. He's saying you should scrap the binary distinction in those categories as they stand and just replace them with a non-binary acting award. Yeah, he is altogether. saying that that one, the woke one. He says, it's difficult for me at the moment trying to justify my head being non-binary and being nominated in female categories. When it comes to categories, do we need to make it specific as to whether you're being nominated for a female role or a male role? So he's saying, I think he's saying well, that. It because, well, earlier in the could... article, no, you're right, that could still be ambiguous. Earlier in the piece, mm. GB News, in the GB News piece, they say, admit it's perfectly reasonable to remove gendered categories. But you're right, I mean, they're just, they're editorialising that. So it is a touch ambiguous still. 
anyway. So anyway, it's probably the woke one, isn't it? <laughs> Let's be honest. It probably but, uh, is, yeah. Probably he's is, he's yeah. in Hollywood. You know, why wouldn't it be? All right, but I'm going to beat you anyway with my with my Trump one now. This is I've saved this one. My Trump card. Incels are transmaxing Toby. Now this is the thing where incels have realized their lives are so hard as men lower on the pecking order, not alphas like us. And they're like, well, what should we do? I know we'll become women, not because we genuinely have gender dysphoria, but because it looks like an easier life. And they've come out with this transmaxing manifesto. And they say there are many potential benefits from transitioning from male to female. Number zero, I don't know why they start with zero, sexual excitement from having a feminine body. Okay. One, the superiority of female aesthetics. Schopenhauer disagree, but okay. Two, access to the transbian dating pool. Don't know what that is. Three, full body orgasms. Sorry, listener. Four, multiple orgasms from penile stimulation. Definitely sorry for that one. Five, you will feel emotions stronger, controversial, and be happier on estrogen. Six, your breasts will become sensitive, if, presumably before you didn't have them. Seven, being able to attract cis lesbians if you become attractive enough. Eight, being able to attract high quality males for sex question mark nine softer skin and less slash no acne 10 live longer true 11 being able to extract resources from males <laughs> i mean you know yeah 12 you will no longer be driven to do dangerous and idiotic things due to testosterone 13 stop and reverse hair loss yeah, is a big issue 14 people will treat you better if they think you're a female fact check true 15 less likely to get killed and they link to articles for that one. 16, access to female spaces, brackets, males are disgusting. 17, cheaper car insurance. <laughs> <laughs> so that is the peakest woke thing I've ever heard. Or is it? Or is it? Or is it? Is it alt-right incel culture? Yeah, I think it's a matter of interpretation. I think surely they're just making the point that women have a much easier life than men. And therefore, to demonize men and imagine they have everything their way is um, wrong. I mean, they're not actually saying that they want to castrate themselves and become women, are they? It's just they a are kind of, saying it's that. a sort of semi-satirical way of no, making no, they the are point that they that. usually make, which is that, you know, as men, they feel like victims because women have a much easier ride than men these days. If it's a big troll, then then that's the case. But I think it's presented at least as if they are seriously saying it and people are seriously okay. covering it. So, you know... Who knows? What do you call an What do you call a, an incel who's a trans rights activist? It's quite an, a it's, weird. It's cocktail, a trans maxer. Is that what, okay? Trans maxer. Maximizing. That, <laughs> I think so. I've got one more, um, which okay. is I don't know if you saw, but the University of Aberdeen, uh, I think the English department has um, attached a trigger warning to Peter Pan, um, and I, I, you, you you kind of think you know every time. You think they've they've touched rock bottom uh, with the trigger warnings? They, you know, they all, the floor gives way and you start falling through the building again. And this, but this does feel like rock bottom. Surely, what could be less alarming? What could be less traumatizing? Less likely to kind of cause mental anguish than Peter Pan? Um, uh, but but you know, and if I was um, a student at um, Aberdeen, I'd be tempted to sue the head of the English department for libel. The implication that I'm such a snowflake that I could be triggered by a work of classic children's literature is pretty insulting. Um, any alpha male, non-trans-maximising uh, uh, students at Aberdeen University listening to our podcast, if you fancy suing the English department um, for uh, 
insulting you and suggesting that you are so fragile, so delicate that you could be deeply traumatized by Peter Pan, you know, get in touch and we'll do a fundraiser on the Daily Skeptic to fund the case. Yeah, and that one I thought had an extra irony that Peter Pan, of course, never grew up. And these students never want to grow up because they're scared of reading Peter Pan. And that yeah, the, yeah, good irony, isn't it? Uh, but is good. it enough? Is it enough, Toby, for you to win peak woke? Or I mean, who do you think wins? I think I win, but I, I want. What do you think? Yeah, I think I'm. I'm happy to give it to you. I know you care more about it than me. <laughs> <laughs> how do you know that? So yeah, sorry, Toby has to win weak poke, and you know it's just how it goes. Sometimes I win it. You know, it's just how it is. So that's peak woke dealt with. Thought I'd just read a few reviews, Toby, as I'm wont to do, because we really appreciate them. And this is a great one. This was a great one because it is, yes, it's about me, but Daniel Sloss was saying I'm not a comedian and no one on GB is. And then someone just by chance wrote a review, saw Nick Dixon support Tom stayed in Bristol a few years ago, you know, as if to prove I am a real comedian or was for 11 years. And he had a horrible drunk woman heckling him and he seemed quite shook, but I thought he handled it well, but above all was very funny. He and Toby make a great team. This is a funny and useful podcast for navigating the folly of the modern left. So that's a good one, isn't it? And um, yeah, that's a good one. Top quality podcast from Old Normal. Brilliant roundup of the week's nonsense, playfully but intelligently dissected and discussed. Great chemistry between Nick and Toby. There you go. You know, not off off the podcast, but on it. And um, <laughs> and Will's section fits perfectly and is always interesting. Love the hour plus episodes. So it, I said we should do these long episodes. People love it. Now this is perhaps my favorite review of all the time. Although I hope you agree, Toby, but you may not. So a great podcast and a microcosm of the new political landscape behind any of the issues discussed on the show, immigration, identity politics, free speech, and pandemic hysteria. What's really up for debate is the boomer truth regime. Toby, despite his better instincts and evidence to the country, cannot abandon his fidelity to a post-war liberal project, a project many think has ended or is on its last legs. He's also and understandably always on guard against the possible charge of engaging in conspiracy theory. Nick, dispossessed and self-deprecating in equal measure, stares into the abyss of liberal modernity and manages to make it witty. Unlike Toby, he sees the obvious conspiracy of our times, that power has direction without intention. One does not need to posit the existence of a shadowy cabal to see how big pharma, big tech and big gov coalesce around a similar set of interests. The pair are a great double act and steer a funny and friendly course through these strange times, a libertine with doubts about progress and a reactionary who knows we cannot go back. Long may it continue. I thought it was beautifully written, but is it too insulting to you? Because someone said it it was. I thought it wasn't. (laughs) It is a bit insulting to me, Um, but um, it makes up for that by being extremely flattering about you. So I can understand why you've chosen that one. Um, What about one uh, more that's nice about you? I've got one that's good about you. Go on. Last one. My top podcast at the moment. I really look forward to the Weekly Skeptic. Fantastic, down-to-earth and authentic commentary with different takes on the week's events from eminently sensible perspectives. It's also well over an hour, so it can be enjoyed over several sessions. Plus, they made a podcast between Christmas and New Year, which deserves massive respect. Now, actually, it didn't mention you by name, Toby, but, you know, it's positive <laughs> yeah, in no, general. <laughs> no, that, that's better. Yeah, I think I think I prefer to think of it. I think the debate between us, like the debate between me and James Stellingpole, does reflect a kind of broader debate, certainly within the conservative movement. But I don't I like to think of it not as someone trying to cling on to the kind of last gasp about to expire post-war liberal project and someone who recognizes the game is up and is staring into the abyss and being funny about it i think it's more you know someone trying to make sense of what's happened particularly over the last 21 months by appealing to reason and evidence and relying on 
logic um, and someone who has kind of abandoned those things and is just embracing wild and irrational explanations. Um, but uh, I did write about this, this this kind of cluster of issues and tried to make sense of it in my pedestrian, liberal, naive, old-fashioned <laughs> way um, in, in the Daily Sky. I was in Iceland uh, at the weekend and I was there to give uh, a speech at the inaugural meeting of this free speech society in Iceland. And um, I wrote this speech and then I kind of polished it a bit and published it on the Daily Skeptic earlier in the week called Pascal has made slaves or Pascal's wager has made slaves of us all. And um, in which I'm trying to understand exactly what's happened and why it is that so many governments around the world and Inter- intergovernmental bodies and international agencies have all kind of interfered with our liberty in order to minimise these fairly low probability but high consequence risks um, and come up with a kind of fairly cuckish solution, uh, as I'm sure you and James would think of it. Uh, but anyway, worth reading if you're interested in these issues and want to want to see it, see, see, see the kind of uh, more reasonable liberal <laughs> point of view articulated it, at some length. Well, I think, Toby, you've got your own back there with the implication I'm a, a sort of wild conspiracy theorist, which I disagree with. I mean, I was called a reactionary in the bit. You, I, could, I could take offense at that, but I happen to like it. But, you know, you know I, think it's, I think it was not quite as insulting as you thought, but it is an interesting uh, debate. And, um, yeah, go and read Toby's piece if you, want, if you want logic and reason. You can go to nickdixon.substack.com if you want wild speculation and whimsical <laughs> opinions. Um, anything else, Toby, before we go? Well, yeah, just one thing that there was um, uh, we talked last week about the debate between um, Carl Benjamin and Peter Hitchens. And actually, I, I saw an interesting 15 minute talk at NatCon, the annual convention of um, national conservatives. It was by a guy called David Azarad, and it was why he rejects the black pill. And it was reasons to be optimistic um, in spite of everything that's happened, particularly in the last 21 months or so. Worth watching. Check it out on YouTube. David Azarad, National Conservative. And he, and he sort of acknowledged everything is just as bad as, you know, Peter Hitchens and you imagine it to be. Uh, but nonetheless, there are some reasons to be optimistic. And he kind of went through, I think, five reasons why there is still grounds for optimism. Um, so worth watching. Hmm. Yeah, OK, I'll check that out. I mean, yeah, optimism is nice. I think the fact that I still managed to be quite funny, as, as it says in these reviews, I think is something, you know, I'm not that miserable, given how, I mean, privately I'm very miserable, but I, outwardly I managed to be quite positive in a way. So, I think, you know, despite the gloom. But anyway, yes, I'll watch that if, and see what these alleged uh, positives are. Anything you want to promote then, or have you done all your promotion? I just want to make sure. Please donate to The Daily Skeptic. Um, every little counts. Uh, but one, one, one point, if you are going to donate and you're a first-time donator, don't click on the box on the right-hand side on the website. That sometimes creates problems. Better to click on the donate button at the top of the page and you'll be able to do it much more easily. Okay, so do that. And we'll see you next week. And until then, stay sceptical. Stay sceptical. Stay sceptical.